Most women will agree that August 23, 1920, the day when the Tennessee legislature finally enacted the federal suffrage amendment, is a day to begin with, not a day to end with. Men are saying, perhaps, thank God this everlasting woman's fight is over. But women, if I know them, are saying, now, at last, we can begin. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. Welcome back to Ordinary Equality. I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and activist. For those of you who missed season one, we talked all about the Equal Rights Amendment, a simple addition to the U.S. Constitution that would have extraordinary consequences. We talked about why it's necessary, what went wrong, and how the battle for its addition continues to this day. The most effective weapon in the anti-ERA arsenal is its supposed connection to the ultimate polarizing issue, abortion. It's essentially been called the everything related to abortion amendment because that's what it is. They want to use ERA to mandate tax-funded abortions. So this season, we're talking about abortion, but not like you've heard it before. We want to look at women's control over their reproductive health from the Middle Ages to the slave trade to Roe versus Wade to today. It's a story that combines political, religious, and social history layered with systemic racism and misogyny. To tell it, I enlisted the help of a dear friend and standout guest from last season. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my new co-host, brilliant editor and activist, Jamia Wilson. Hello, I'm so excited to be here talking about one of my very, very favorite issues. I'm so excited to be here talking with one of my very, very favorite people. You. You are one of my <laughs> favorite people. I'm so happy we're here together having one of the most important conversations of our lifetime and during an important time to be having this conversation. So for folks who don't know, who are you and what do you do? I am an activist, an author, a storyteller, an editor, and I I'm a feminist organizer, and I cut my teeth in feminist activism, doing work 
at the intersection of reproductive justice, media, and outreach at Planned Parenthood, which we both have in common. <laughs> ah, the pink machine. <laughs> yes. Um, as antis call it. So Jamia is basically the Jane of all trades and the ultimate champion of all things feminist and repro. I really think I, I couldn't be having this conversation with a more perfect person. Um, what compels you about repro? What compels you about abortion? And why is communicating and, and being on the show so important to you? It's really important to me to fight for reproductive rights and reproductive justice because I truly believe that if we don't have reproductive justice for all people, we are not respecting the dignity and the lives of humans. And I'm really lucky that I had people guiding me along the way to help me have a more expansive view about this. And so I hope that I can help be a champion for others who are also on the learning journey. For me, it's important that people understand critically how we got to this point and how we got to this point in our cultural understanding and cultural conversation so that there can be more informed views about what it really means to talk about health care, what it really means to talk about justice, what it really means to talk about healing and why abortion singularly shouldn't be separated from any other form of compassionate care. So let's dive in because we've got a lot to cover. Abortion, the termination of a pregnancy, is a deeply personal issue that's been morphed into sort of a political flashpoint. It's true. Most Americans know firmly where they stand on reproductive rights, but very few of us know how we got here. How did this issue become a stark dividing line between the two biggest U.S. political parties? How did the government get involved in this issue to begin with? With conservative judges taking the bench in our nation's highest courts, where do our rights stand and how might they change moving forward? That quote you heard at the top of the show was said by women's rights activist Crystal Eastman. She was in the room when the ERA was written 100 years ago. So this fight is not a new one. For a century, people fighting for gender justice have sought to give women control over their own bodies. Just after women gained the constitutional right to vote in 1920, Crystal Eastman said, Birth control is just as elementary and essential in our propaganda as equal pay. Women are to have children when they want them. That's the first thing. That ensures freedom. While parts of this conversation can seem like they should be clear cut, there's a lot of nuance. Abortion is personal and action and in all the ways we are socialized to feel about it. The stakes are high. The ability to determine when and if we want to be pregnant or not is essential to achieving equity. Before we travel back to tackle the history of this issue writ large, today we're starting with our own personal turning points. We've both been on quite a journey. We certainly have. We each grew up in very religious households and later went on to work professionally in the reproductive rights advocacy world. For me, it all started with my family's biggest secret. For those of you listening for the first time, a little background. I grew up in what I describe as an Orthodox Mormon household. I was the oldest of four siblings. At least, that's what I thought. For context, Mormons are not the crazed clinic protester types, but abortion is taboo in the community. I didn't know anyone who had gotten one growing up. Then, when I was a teenager, my mom shared the following. 
I found out I was pregnant for the first time when I was 15 years old. It was 1971, and I was a junior in high school. And in 1971, you had two options. You could get married, or you could give up your baby for adoption. Those were your only choices, really. My boyfriend, the father of the baby, wanted me to get an abortion. But there were so many problems with that. It was illegal in the United States. In Mexico, you could find an abortion, but it was very risky and very scary. And you, you know, you, you could be injured or killed. So that really wasn't a good option. I would, would not probably have chose that even if it was legal. The revelation that I was not actually my mother's oldest child was, to put it mildly, a complete shock. My mom explained that she had given up her baby girl in a closed adoption. She knew nothing about what had happened to her child. But at the age of 27, my sister Anne found my mom. They began talking and even had met in person by the time my mom divulged her secret to me. Here's Anne. I was the secret. <laughs> I was, for 27 years, I was the secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how old I was when I reunited with our mother for the first time. It's amazing to think like, pretty soon I will have known you guys for longer than I didn't know you guys. Wrap your mind around that one. In time, I got to know the sister I never knew I had. She was an accomplished dancer who had graduated from the Boston Conservatory, magna cum laude. And eventually, I learned that my sister had a story that echoed our moms, though with a different outcome. When Anne was 16, she also got pregnant. So I found myself pregnant. <laughs> um, and it was with, a, I was in a really, just a terrible, probably borderline emotionally abusive relationship at the time. And when I told the father, um, he lit the liter the direct quote, I might've even said this at the time because it's like one of those seared in your memory things. He said, well, what do you want me to do about it? Um, so it's made very clear, like you are on your own. I was totally just dumbfounded with what to do. I knew that the decision was between having and keeping the baby or having an abortion because adoption was never something that I could do. It would have been the first time that I had any, anyone in my life that I was biologically related to and connected to in that way. There's no way that it would have happened. Um, so those were the two choices. To put this into context, Anne got pregnant in 1988 because of a big pending Supreme Court case, abortion was everywhere in the news. The Webster decision, the most anxiously awaited ruling of the decade. The press room at the Supreme Court erupted. And when the dust had settled, a major setback for abortion rights was obvious. It did grant states broad new authority to limit the right to abortion. This is perhaps the battle of the decade. But today's decision sets the stage for a bitter political fight. This is literally the beginning of war. In a controversial and highly fractured decision, the Supreme Court ruled on a case called Webster versus Reproductive Health Services. The court upheld Missouri state restrictions on abortion. Though the case didn't completely ban abortion, it made them a lot harder to get. 
As an adoptee herself, one particular slogan anti-choice protesters shouted at her filled Anne with sharp irritation. She knew firsthand that adoption is not the flawless fairy tale they portrayed it to be. Like, okay, are you going to take me in when my parents kick me out of my house? Are you going to pay all of my medical bills? What about the fact that my, my, all of my ambitions, my dance career, having to stop and like put this kind of, put my body through this at this point in my training would really derail my future. Like, but there, there are just so many facts, like you don't know the first thing about my life and the circumstances into which this baby would be born, you know, and, and, and the circumstances under which I'm making this decision. You know, it's just such, it's such a, such an oversimplification. Anne was the first person I knew personally who talked about having had an abortion. So eight years ago, when I decided to make a documentary about the topic for a school project, she and my mom both kindly agreed to be interviewed. For those of you who have been listening since season one, you probably don't find it surprising that I wrote my family into just such a project. So I guess eight years ago, I was a practicing Mormon. (laughs) who decided to make a movie about abortion for a school project. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) So I guess my question is just like, you were the first person I ever talked to in person or that I knew who had kind of openly said that they had had an abortion. Really? Um, Oh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I've always known other people who have, so that's just sort of a, oh, wow, different different context there for our lives. I did not grow up with people who are shouting their abortions. <laughs> yeah, it was just like this totally new experience for me. How did you grow up? I guess most people probably don't know, but you did not grow up Mormon. I did not grow up Mormon. Um, I was raised in a church. It was um, a United Methodist church, um, just sort of a, a, a Protestant denomination. But like by by pretty much any standards, it was a fairly liberal church. Um, so my experience of religion growing up was very different than yours. <laughs> to put it mildly, I used to feel like a cultural anthropologist when I would come visit you guys. <laughs> like, I'm just going to immerse myself in this world and observe the different mores and rituals. And I felt very honored to be um, allowed this glimpse into your world. But it was it was definitely very different than wh- the way that I grew up. <laughs> In the eight years since I first interviewed Anne for that student film, my religious affiliations have changed rather drastically. The Mormon Church has excommunicated the founder of the Mormon women's group Ordain Women. Kate Kelly says her group supports gender equality in the church with the eventual goal of women serving in the clergy. The church accuses Kelly of apostasy for publicly promoting positions that contradict church teachings. But at the time, I was still a very practicing Mormon. I recently asked Anne what it felt like to be asked questions by the old me. I was curious about whether fear of my faith made her want to express more regret than she actually felt about getting the abortion. Turns out I was spot on. When I talked to you early on, the way that you described it is you said that you put yourself in that position. I don't know how much of that was because I was the one interviewing you and you felt like maybe I would have that perspective or you just felt torn about it yourself? Yeah, the answer is actually both. That um, I, I do think it was partially who was interviewing me and part of it was also, I didn't know a lot about 
my birth parents growing up until I was given information when I was 18. Um, but one thing I did know, and the story was made clear to me that this was a teenager who got herself in trouble. That was the, that was the terminology back then. That was the euphemism that they would use, got herself in trouble. And in discussing sexuality and in discussing the facts of life, um, it was always sort of, you know, really made clear, like, you need to not follow that path. We need to make sure that you are not going to follow in those footsteps. You know what I mean? Um, so I did, when it happened to me, feel like, oh my God, I put myself in that position. And there is also the sense that I could be accepted and forgiven for having made this decision if I expressed sufficient remorse about it. Do you know what I mean? It also caused me to not tell you the full story. And I, I haven't actually gone back and listened to the interview <laughs> that we did. I was like, it's probably better if I just just forge ahead. But I know that I had not told you the whole story. <sighs> so I did have an abortion when I was 16. I also had a second abortion when I was 17. And again, the feeling of if I made one mistake, then I might be forgiven for it. But making that mistake, you know, framing it that whether you want to frame it that way or not, a second time that might be treading into unforgivable territory. Um, but ultimately, the thing that helped me resolve my feelings about the first abortion was having the second abortion. <laughs> so when I found myself pregnant a second time, a little bit less than a year later, I initially was like, oh, this is my chance. Like, this is my second chance and I'm going to keep the baby this time. Um, I'm, I've been, been given this new opportunity and I'm going to make a different decision and we will live happily ever after. And I kind of walked around in that sort of denial-based <laughs> days for about a week until a friend sat me down and served me some truth tea <laughs> was really like, listen, you, you cannot do this. <laughs> you will have to give up your life as a dancer. Your parents have already made it clear that you are not going to be able to live with them. You, what, what are you going to do? And like, not just those facts, but all kinds of other, like, look at all, look at this variable, look at that variable, the, look at this other variable. All of these things mean you are just, you're not going to be able to do this. And so it was, that was, that was a, a reality check that I really needed. And at that point I made the decision like, okay, but the aftermath of that, I mean, I didn't exactly like walk away whistling from it, but I was not in the same state of turmoil that I was the first time. I felt really like I've thought this through in a, in a very direct and in a way that had a lot of clarity um, and felt, felt resolved about it. I feel really lucky that I got to talk to my sister then and now about her abortions. And just in eight years, the conversation has changed so much and my feelings about it have changed as well. And there's been a lot of a lot more self-acceptance, I think, um, as a result of the way that that we're we have learned to talk about it now. In future episodes, we'll cover abortion through the ages, dating back to before there even was a word for it. We're going to talk about the development of religious and cultural perceptions and norms. We'll dive into the purposeful modern rhetoric used to organize a conservative coalition around this issue. 
But I wanted to start here because it's part of my family history. And these kinds of decisions are part of all of our family histories. Nearly one in four women in the U.S. will have an abortion by the age of 45. So there's almost no one who doesn't know someone who's terminated a pregnancy. Like me, you might just not be aware that someone you love has had an abortion. Your experience and Anne's experience are so interesting to me because they illustrate how much opinions on this topic can evolve over time. Humans do have the capacity to expand and change their point of view and their perspective on many things, including things like abortion that are so profoundly presented to us as binaries in our culture and society in the U.S. specifically. I'm really excited that your story is stigma smashing in addition to helping to normalize the kinds of families that we can form in diversity instead of the kinds of families that a patriarchal society would tell us are quote unquote normal. I mean, if we if a Baptist and a Mormon (laughs) can get together and have some really nuanced genealogical discussions about abortion's impact on our entire families, then I'm I'm guessing most anyone can. (laughs) A hundred percent. I'm their story helps illustrate something that I have come to believe that both adoption, parenting and abortion are all parenting decisions made out of love. It just makes a lot more sense when you're talking to people you know. Yes. And love. And it's so funny to me because almost everyone knows and loves someone who has terminated a pregnancy and certainly someone who has had a baby. Yet these conversations don't really exist. There's always, in particularly in the media, but also in discourse, public discourse, there's like two sides. It's like the secular people who believe abortion on demand, any reason, it's like any other procedure, it has no cultural relevance or moral significance. And then the other side is religious people, and they're expected to believe that life begins at conception, and it's akin to murder, and, you know, all these things. And most people probably believe something in between those two very, very staunch extremes. And when you talk about it in real terms, when you talk about it with your family members, it those political discourse talking points don't make any sense. In the midst of a heated cultural conversation about abortion, it often feels like we're all separately entrenched on different sides, but that's not always the case. We've seen political parties and different groups of people change their minds about what they think about abortion over the years. And yet we don't talk about it. We're all just constantly evolving. In some ways, that documentary I made eight years ago was just the beginning of a major shift. After law school, I went to work at Planned Parenthood, which, having been raised religious, was a steep learning curve. I went from a community where sex is so taboo it's almost unmentionable to regularly talking about condoms, STIs, and abortion at staff meetings. I can empathize. I also had a really religious upbringing, and I went on to work at Planned Parenthood, too, and loved every minute of it. But a lot of the earliest and most formative memories that I have about abortion really came with reconciling faith and justice-based values 
One thing you might not guess about me is that I grew up in Saudi Arabia as an expat. It was really difficult because when you're a Christian in a unitary Islamic absolute monarchy where the First Amendment does not exist <laughs> and, and nor does freedom of press, you really, really, really have to believe in what you believe to be willing to attend an illegal underground church, to be willing to risk punishment in order to practice your religion, and to be willing to send your children to Sunday school, when I think about that, in the <laughs> midst of a place where you know that you could at best get deported, but also uh, at worst see a prison cell. Um, or worse. So to help paint that picture, I asked one of my oldest friends to reminisce because a big part of how we became friends after I met her came from us going to the same underground church. You want me to introduce myself? Um, okay, I'm Naomi, a friend of Jamia for, I don't know, what is it, like 18 years or something? It might even be more than that. I feel like I have that beautiful shell that you gave me when we were 13. I think we met when we were 12. Or 12. Yeah, we were 12. We were 12. And oh now gosh. we're uh, 40. We're 40. 40. <laughs> oh, that's a lie. That's a dirty lie. I've known Naomi for 28 years. We met in sixth grade when I was the new girl who moved in from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to Jeddah, the town that we met in. Talking about, yeah, growing up as a Christian or practicing Christian in Saudi Arabia was like, you feel like super authentic in your convictions. Like, I think it really led to us, you know, having a lot of debates with our classmates about religion because we're like, we're doing this thing, it's illegal, but we have like so much um, belief in what we are doing that we're like willing to risk being kicked out of the country and all this stuff. Thinking back on it, it's kind of wild to to have had that experience. Do you remember, like, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, just now um, testimony or conversions, or I remember when someone would like get busted or when something would happen where they'd be like, oh my gosh, like we almost got shut down. We have to move locations. Do you remember? So, like when I think about it now, I'm like, oh, that was drama. That was the stuff of movies. And so we used to sit around in your room. So Naomi had this awesome loft bed. She had the coolest house. Like her parents were cool. Her mom was the first acupuncturist I'd ever met. And I was like, this is amazing. And we would watch like movies with Reese Witherspoon, who was like close to our age at the time. And it was a really dreamy time in our life. And I have all these amazing memories. But I also remember Naomi and I devouring these magazines called Brio that were made by oh Focus in the family. And, oh my gosh. And I remember reading an article in Brio about like how like good Christian girls like us do not get pregnant. We don't do anything that would like tempt men or boys to, to, to make any of us unpure. And that abortion is a sin and it's like one of the worst sins that anyone could ever commit. And so I was thinking about those magazines because I think about that time we had as like such a candy colored, like beautiful, innocent time. But then I remember like seeing that in one of the magazines and being like, whoa, I was just reading about 
Amy Grant and like her testimony and about like why she loves God and love and light. And now they're talking about abortion, right? And at the time I didn't, the word focus on the family didn't mean anything to me. So I'm curious about for you, what was your breakthrough moment? Cause I feel like mine came in our friendship because we'd pass those magazines around. That's interesting. I don't remember that. What I remember about Brio magazine is, um, there was this article about Garth Brooks and how like nobody should listen to his music because he got a divorce because he cheated on his <laughs> wife. So that's what I remember about Brio magazine. So what I knew about reproductive health when we were probably 12 to maybe like 15, I think I learned it from you <laughs> because your parents were very intentional in um, making sure that you were very well informed about these things. And we both came from like, I would say sort of strict Christian households, but mine was a bit more avoidant. And I think yours was more like proactive. So I do remember learning a lot about like, I think reproductive health from you when we were kids. So Naomi's pivotal moment wasn't exactly aligned with mine. But she's right that my parents were intentional about the subject. I have this really distinctive memory that I learned for the first time at Sunday school that abortion was evil. I didn't learn this from my parents. My parents were actually liberal Democrats, but also devout Christians who adhered to the Bible's mandates, but were also leery of patriarchal assumptions about morality So I was really confused when I heard the leaders at Sunday school tell us that abortion was evil. Evil seemed like such a potent word. And I wanted to understand why that was, because I knew that my parents had said that they were pro-choice, that they belonged to a political party that supported reproductive freedom. And I really wanted to understand why what they were saying was so different from what I was hearing in Sunday school, especially since I'd been taught that I should listen to the word of God. When I went to my mom and I explained to her that I was really worried about what we'd been told and how I'd been instructed to pray to save us all from damnation, she said that we really need to sit down, we need to brew some lemon tea and have a serious discussion. She asked me a question, as she often did, starting off by just saying, do you know that you know someone who's had an abortion. And I said, who? And she told me someone who, and she said, do you love that person? And I said, yes. And she said, did you know that you love someone who's had an abortion? Because you do, and you love more than one someone who has had an abortion. So therefore, what does the Bible say about not judging other people? And I thought, ah, okay, aha. She gave me my aha moment. And That's when she taught me that we shouldn't judge people for barriers to access or a lack of resources for their decisions, that we don't have the right to cast judgment against others. But what we do have the power to do is to focus on the true heart of our values, love, mercy, and compassion. And that is what our faith is about, not about condemning and shaming other people. My perspective shifted, not in spite of my religious beliefs, but because of them. A lot of times I look back at my conversation with mom and how she condemned stigma, judgment, and shaming. And I think about her when I think about my pro-choice click moment. My mom passed way before her time. And though I wish I could ask her these questions in person, I often think about what she would say now, what she would 
tell us to think about, what she would advise us to put in perspective. And in some way, I hope that she is a part of these conversations in spirit. Mom helped evolve my thinking, and she also helped me help other people expand their mindset too. Like Kate, I joined the ranks of what the antis call the pink machine, Planned Parenthood. I have a great mini pink t-shirts in that section of my closet that is all Planned Parenthood, paraphernalia, scarves, t-shirts, and other accoutrements. I've come full circle from anti-choice Sunday school to shouting abortionist freedom into a megaphone on the steps of the Supreme Court. Conversations about abortion tend to have defined sides, dictated by other facets of identity, particularly religion. Over our lifetimes, Jamia and I have both changed our minds a lot about what abortion means. On this show, we're not going to talk around abortion like we did growing up. We're going to address it directly. It's a major understatement to say that 2020 was a tough year. Many of us are tired. I keep saying all the women within me are tired. And <laughs> we've been fighting these circular battles for justice and freedom for centuries. I find comfort and inspiration in the words of Crystal Eastman. After working towards the 19th Amendment for decades, her thoughts after its passage were, now at last we can begin. She immediately pivoted to reproductive control because she saw how closely it is tied to our freedom. Her 1920 words were prescient. The immediate feminist program must include voluntary motherhood, Freedom of any kind for women is hardly worth considering unless it is assumed that they will know how to control the size of their families. Regrettably, controlling our own reproductive lives is still a debate today, just as it was in the 1920s when Crystal Eastman was rabble-rousing. When conservatives dominate not just the Supreme Court, but other high-powered positions across the country, this is not just an issue for the history books. We are still on the front lines of this battle today. In some ways, progress has stalled, if not reversed. The Supreme Court has now granted a Trump administration request to limit access to a drug for abortions in early pregnancy. This week added to the growing number of states that have passed restrictions on abortion. The expectation is a case will eventually come before the newly conservative Supreme Court. Challenging Roe v. Wade. The heated debate over abortion, this time in Missouri, brought some to tears as lawmakers overwhelmingly passed the country's latest abortion ban. Stay tuned as we embark on a quest to discover how abortion became the fight it is today, why it holds so much power, and what we can do about it. While it often feels like the country is moving along the path to progress, our founding fathers actually lived in an era free of the social and religious stigma associated with abortion today. Like we talked about last season, they put a lot of other awful things into the Constitution. They could have put in an abortion ban, but they didn't even consider it. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're turning back the clocks to understand abortion throughout the ages. From the ancients, to European colonizers, and the practices of some of abortion's most powerful 19th century foes, medical doctors. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, with editorial support from Janice Formicella. 
Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Carmen Borca Carrillo and to Faith Saley for being the voice of Crystal Eastman in this episode.